If you have a Bible, you can open to Nehemiah chapter 9, and our text is Nehemiah 9, 1 through 5. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law and of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Serebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Good morning. So thankful that Kathy could visit with us, just an issue very close to my heart, to the heart of our church. We've been working with New Day since they started. You guys have been extremely generous with gals from New Day. We have provided different water skiing trips and donated cars to gals going to college, providing scholarships to go to colleges and things like that. It's been an incredible thing that you guys have been so generous with what you've been giving, and we want to continue to bless those girls in this way. Kathy mentioned that we're looking at starting a couple new homes in the Napa Valley, which is a much shorter drive than the seven and a half, eight and a half hours that we have to drive nowadays. So opportunities there to pray about and to also consider giving toward If you're new to our church, we're in a Nehemiah series, and so we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so here's where we're at, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I chose a smaller amount of verses because I knew Kathy was coming to speak with us, so we're going to fly through these verses kind of pretty quick this morning. But before we do, let me pray. God, thank you for entrusting your children, us, to occupy this part of the city, to occupy the issues of today, how much faith you have in your church to go about things that we are completely unable to battle, that we kind of revert back to you, Lord. We rely on you, and we know that your word is so important for the change in people. And so, God, as we look through your scriptures this morning, we ask for your presence. We ask that we may encounter you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick recap from chapter 8, we found that these folks in Jerusalem gathered at the square to hear from God. And on that first day that they gathered, they heard from God through his word, through the scriptures. And they responded with repentance and with worship. And so they came back a second day, verse 13, and they found that they had forgotten about this festival, the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And what this feast was, was a commemoration, a remembrance of God's deliverance, of his provision from when they were wandering out in the wilderness after they were set free from slavery in Egypt, going towards the promised land, that during all those years, those decades of wandering the wilderness, God was providing for them, just miraculously providing for them. Now, How did all of this come about, this first day, this second day, and all these remembrances and all this? All of this came about because they gathered to hear from the Word of God. 
that all of this came about because it was the word of God that led them to repentance. It led them to worship. And it was the scriptures that led them to remember the Feast of Booths. So you see how they elevated the word of God so that God could speak to them in regards to these things. Now you look back to verses 3 and 4, the first day that they did this, and you see how they elevated the word of God. And it was read from morning until midday, and it was read from a platform made for the purpose of proclaiming the scriptures. And they did this again the second day, verse 18, we find that it's written, day by day from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. Now you head over to chapter 9, verse 3, and you look at what they did there. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, for another quarter of it. They made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. Now, how long is a quarter of the day? According to Jewish custom, tradition, a day is 12 hours. So a quarter of that is three hours. So they read from the scriptures for three hours, following by confession and worship for another three hours. So here we're talking about a six-hour church service. I haven't heard any complaints about our one hour and 15 minute church service other than this. I have heard this. It's too short. And I was pleasantly surprised because that's biblical. I'll see what we can do. Anyway, why don't we have six hour church services like these folks did? Well, it's not a biblical mandate. It's not law. And so those people, they wanted to do that. And a big part of that was that they actually heard from God. That they indeed heard from God. And you know that when you're doing something really fun, just time flies by, right? When you're doing something you're really interested in, when you're doing something you're really passionate about, time just passes by. And you guys also know about prioritizing and reprioritizing things based on that importance or that value that it brings to you. So for example, if someone offered you tickets to tonight's game, You'd go, right? You'd go. You'd drop everything, no matter what you had planned tonight, and you'd go. Someone offered you game five tickets in your own backyard. You're going. You're going to shift your schedule. You're going to change your plans, do whatever you needed to be at that game, unless you're not a sports fan, which I hear out there. You'd still take the ticket because you can just sell it. So don't lie to me. You take it. And if that's not the case, if still you're saying no, then give the ticket to me. (laughs) If you're so, you know, give it to me. Here's a more universal example. A family emergency about prioritizing and reprioritizing. Your child, your parent, your grandparent, your cousin, your loved ones, they have a life-threatening accident. You drop everything. Everything's out the window. It doesn't matter what is going on. You leave work, you leave school, you leave a meeting, you leave church. You prioritize the things that are valuable, that are important to you in your life. You do. So, if you really heard from God, if you really heard from God, we'd reprioritize our life to hear from Him, wouldn't we? If we really heard from him, if I knew I'd hear from God at a specific time, I would be there. Wouldn't you? If you knew he showed up at a certain place at a certain time, you'd be there. Now, 
why aren't more people doing whatever they have to do on a given Sunday, such as go to church? And I'm talking to Christians here. Why are they not present at church? And I think it boils down to this. Priority. It's just not a priority. And perhaps they don't expect to hear from God. So why wouldn't they go do other things? If there isn't that expectation that you're going to encounter God, yeah, sure, do other things. And perhaps the Sunday gatherings just become monotonous or it's just become routine or whatever it is, whatever the reasons are, it's just not a priority. And nothing is going to change to make it a priority unless people really know that they're going to encounter God and realize that the spiritual revival of a community only happens in community. And the belief that one's spirituality can flourish independent of a greater community is a false idea. Now, let's look at those in chapter 9 gathered in expectation to hear from God. Verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So here they fasted. They wore sackcloth, which is made up of this rough material like burlap or goat's hair or camel's hair, this stuff. So you can imagine just how uncomfortable wearing this itchy stuff would be. And they also put earth on their heads. Now, why are they doing all this? Why are they not eating and wearing potato sacks or whatever and putting earth on their head? Why are they doing this? It's to show their broken hearts and their broken spirits before God. To show how distressed they were over their own sin, their own darkness. And to show how some have let food or material wealth and goods and how They've looked upon those things as things before God. And so this was a physical representation of their spiritual state, which they discovered by studying the scriptures. They were living out an outward expression of what was happening inside of them, and they were showing this publicly as a sign of humility towards God and towards one another. It was a sign of transparency, a sign of vulnerability, because we all know that we fool each other all the time with our looks, don't we? Things can be going pretty bad for you, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it may be. It may be going bad inside of you, but outside you look pretty good. The people have no idea what's going on inside of you, because on the outside you look like you've eaten, you look like you're well-dressed, and you look like you're clean. You don't have earth on your head. You look good. But these guys here, they're revealing what's happening inside spiritually. Like, you know, I'm not hiding this anymore. This is me on the inside. I'm not holding any of this back. And this is me. This is my broken, spiritual, dirty state. Because how we look on the outside can't completely tell the story of what's happening with you on the inside. It can tell a lot but it doesn't give you the whole comprehensive picture. So we know that what we eat and what we wear and how clean you look says a lot about who you are and what you value. You can probably tell by how someone looks on the outside what kind of music they like or that they don't like. You can probably tell, not all the time, but for the most part, you can kind of see. And this is the same thing with socioeconomic status that you kind of look and you're like, around this ballpark. Not all the time, often. And so here, the Israelites showed their outward appearance. 
but this time it is consistent with me on the inside. It's my reflection outside is consistent with how I feel inside. Verse 2, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and the iniquities of their fathers. Now why are they doing this? You need to look back to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. It reads this, You shall be holy, which means to be set apart. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. The Jews being set apart is not a sign that they are superior. It was a sign of obedience. It was a sign of devotion. To acknowledge that they were indeed distinct from others. And we as Christians are like this today. We are holy. We are set apart. Not because we're superior. Not because we are better. But because we acknowledge an allegiance, an obedience, a loyalty to Jesus, that we've been set apart for that purpose, not because we're better, because of devotion to Jesus Christ. We're obedient to him. This is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're to live differently. You look at the next verse, verse 11 there. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We are to live differently from the world because we are different. Because we are. Now how so? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter points out three distinct things about a Christian here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. These are the marks of a Christian. These three things. God foreknew our relationship with him. We are being sanctified by his spirit. We are obedient to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins because of that separation that it caused between a holy God and a sinful man. We are different from those who don't know Jesus, not because we're better, but because of our relationship with Jesus. So you see how those in Nehemiah chapter 9, they were set apart. How they appeared on the outside reflected who they were on the inside. That their hearts, their spirits were exposed. And how they set themselves apart from all foreigners because they were different. And it showed their devotion to God and they confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. This is what the scriptures do for us. This is what the word of God does for us. It helps us to see our sins, the reality of who we are. Now, some people just want things to be spun positively all the time, that they stay away from talks of hell or evil or the bad stuff, and they just want to talk about the good stuff of Christianity, and I totally get that. I am for positive reinforcement and affirmation and all those types of things, but here's the truth of the matter. If you were diagnosed with a deadly, life-threatening illness, you can only get better if you deal with the reality that you are sick. You can't pretend that the illness isn't there or you can't positive your way out of that 
You need to be told the truth so that that stage four cancer can be worked on, that you can start finding a cure and start living more healthy and start doing things for that. Now, the gospel of Jesus is good news. It is great news to sinful people, to broken people, to people in bondage. But if you don't know that, you need to be told the truth of your illness, of your darkness, of your brokenness. Otherwise, you don't want the cure. You don't want the health. And we won't be made righteous, whole, or free if we don't acknowledge the reality of our sickly, dark state. Verses 3 through 5. I'm going to skip the names there if you can forgive me for that. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another a quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God on the stairs of the people who wore Levi's. They cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then these other guys stood up and blessed the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The word of God pointed out their sin. It shed light on their darkness so that they could deal with it. It showed them how far away from God they truly were because it diagnosed the real, true illness. And it wasn't about how the rest of the world interprets their lives or dictates culture for us or dictates values and beliefs and those things. They went to the scriptures for those definitions. If we don't get a true and honest diagnosis of our spiritual state, how will we ever live in true spiritual reality if you don't know that? See, sin separates us from God. And to get to a point where we need to deal with that, we can't pretend that it doesn't exist in our lives or that God doesn't exist. The truth is both sin and God exist. So what are we going to do about that? We need guidance. We need direction. And those in Nehemiah's day looked to the book of the Lord as they studied this. It led them to confession. It led them to the worship of God. Now let's see how recognizing our sin and dealing with it works. And we're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7 for this. And here's the background since we don't have time to read both of those chapters. King Solomon completes the temple. It's beautiful. It's ornate. It's all these beautiful things that the scriptures write about. And so at the dedication, he offers this beautiful prayer. And so let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 40, and we'll pick it up there. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers of this place. And now arise, O oh Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. And so to summarize Solomon's prayer, it's essentially this, that he asked for God's presence to be with them. That's what this is. To know God more intimately, to know his will, to experience his goodness, his love, his peace, his glory. And the temple wasn't just to have church, it was to encounter God there. Now jump over to chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, picking up in verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, 
fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's not just about doing church at church. We pray for an encounter with God. For a consistency for who we are on the inside to be who we are trying to be on the outside. For our hearts to be set apart in obedience and devotion to God. For God to reveal who we truly are apart from him so we can deal honestly with the separation that sin has caused. To make confession of those sins and to worship God wholeheartedly. Wouldn't it be so awesome if we just couldn't do church anymore the way we're accustomed to doing it? Coming in, getting a bulletin, sitting down, singing some songs, uh, announcements, uh, reading the scriptures, having a sermon, prayer, communion. See you guys. Like, wouldn't it be great if it was just thrown all out of whack because God's glory came in, just like in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, that all we could do is bow down with our faces to the ground, worship Him, and give thanks because it can't do anything else. Because He's here. Now, some of us might be too proud to recognize this is God of the universe that we're talking about. This is the creator of the universe we're talking about. And I think part of that is because of the familiarity that we've bred that God is a person, which he is. But I think in the personification, we've lost something. So let's take it a few steps back because we know that the scriptures say that God is love. What if perfect love entered the sanctuary? What would that cause you to do? What if perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect rest, perfect hope entered into the sanctuary? How would you respond? Wouldn't God, who is all of those things, be due worship and thankfulness, being that He is all of those things to the perfection? And it's not that we're after the experience of church here. We are after God himself. We are after his presence to experience the glory of God. Now when's the last time you experienced the glory of God? How do you even know if you've experienced the glory of God? Because you kind of watch a lot of television or movies and stuff and you see all the people who proclaim Christianity is glory! You know, and all this stuff and is all proud. But that's not what it is. You know how you know you experience the glory of God? You're humble. You're humble. Because you look at Nehemiah chapter 9 here, they bowed down their faces to the ground, worshiping him and giving him thanks. Because you can't be proud when you're in the presence of God. It's impossible. Moses was told to take his shoes off because he's walking on holy ground. You can't just walk up here. Take your shoes off. People turning around and only seeing the Shekinah glory of God. You enter in humility. There's no way you enter with pride. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. He resists the proud. He opposes the proud. James and Peter both quote Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 in their writings. James chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. They both quote Proverbs here. Yet this is so different from the Christian church, isn't it? The Christian church who claims to have the presence of God, who claims to have the glory of God with them, because a lot of times what we're seeing is pride. We see pride accompanying all that stuff. If we humble ourselves, I think we would actually see a lot more of God's glory. But we're inflated with pride, telling people that they're wrong doing this, telling people that they're wrong doing that, and yet, you know, cruising around in multi-million dollar jets or doing all this kind of stuff and telling people about how you can have everything and coming out with Christian books that say those types of things. And it's not true. The presence of God comes with humility. The glory of God comes with humility. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, you have to notice something here that's really important to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Because when we read this, we want to get like a prayer circle around the whole nation, around flagpoles and pray and tell everybody that they're wrong and do all this kind of stuff. When 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says this, if my people, my people, it's a call for the people of God to live like the people of God. It's not a call for those who don't have a relationship with God to get their act straight. It's for us as the people of God to look at our own sin, to deal with our own stuff, because we got plenty of it. Just look in the mirror. You have enough to deal with. You don't have to point out anybody else's sin. You got plenty. And the first thing we need to do is humble ourselves because pride makes it impossible to hear from God because you would never enter into God's presence if you were prideful, because why would you? You would feel like you had everything under control. So we need to humble ourselves. And you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16 again. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. See, that's pride. It prevents us from obedience, freedom, and experiencing life with God. So the first thing is to humble ourselves. The second is to pray. Because we can't bring ourselves to genuine prayer if we're not humble. And the third is to seek God's face, to seek his heart, to do his will. Now, what is God's will? Because some people wonder about that. I don't know what God's will is for my life. You do. You do. And just like those in Nehemiah chapter 9, what did they do? They looked to the scriptures. And I'm going to tell you what God's will is for your life. And some of you are thinking, you're going to tell me what God's will is for my life. Yes. Through the scriptures. The scripture will reveal this to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's the will of God. I got a long ways to go. I know the will of God, and there's so much more work to be done. You can't accomplish this in your lifetime. So according to 2 Chronicles, we humble ourselves, we pray, we seek God's face, and lastly, we turn from our wicked ways. We repent. We change directions from what we know is inconsistent with the Bible. Now, for some of you who wonder why you don't experience God, or perhaps maybe your spiritual life is kind of dry and you're kind of wondering what's going on, I think it has to do with this last piece of the puzzle here because I know many of you, and this is a humble community. This is a prayerful community. This is a community that seeks God's face. But if you're struggling with that spiritual dryness, if you're struggling with experiencing God, I think it's this. You're not turning from your wicked ways. You stop short there. You do everything else up until that point. How do I know this? Just from 15 years of pastoral ministry at this church, it's just been a pretty consistent pattern from those people that I meet. You're humble enough to come and seek prayer for you. You're humble enough to come and seek counsel. You're humble enough to ask for resources from the church so that we can help you with your issues. So it's not a humility issue. It's not a prayer issue because that's why you're coming. You're wanting prayer. And so you're also coming and you're seeking God's face because when you come, we're opening the word of God and we're sharing this is what the word of God says. And so we want you to go there. So you're humble, you're prayerful, and you're seeking God's face. But here's the last piece that you're not doing. You're not turning from your wicked ways. You're just choosing not to do that part. And so people want to blame God for the evil in this world. Or they use that as a reason to prove, you know, God can't exist because there's evil in the world. If people were biblical and they were scriptural and they would turn from their wicked ways, we wouldn't have to deal with that. Look at Psalm 106 verse 43 with me. This is what the psalmist wrote. Many times he delivered them. This is God. Many times God delivered them. Many times God delivered them. But they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity, through their sin. God has delivered over and over and over and over again, but these people just keep on doing what they do. They don't turn from their wicked ways. We can humble ourselves. We can pray. We can seek God's face. But you need to turn. We need to turn. Turn from our wicked ways. And we don't want to do that because we like our options. We like to determine what is good and what is evil. We like to travel through wide gates. We don't like to travel through narrow gates. Most of us know what is right, but we choose just not to do it. Most of us know our inconsistencies with how we're feeling on the inside and how we appear on the outside. Most of us know that we are to be separated. We are holy. We are set apart because we are followers of Jesus. But we don't do this. We don't turn from our wicked ways. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for bringing Kathy and bringing light to the sinful ways of our world. We ask God for your presence to be here. We ask God that we would indeed hear from you. And I pray, Lord, just for one person to be changed by your word here this morning. That your word was alive to them and it spoke to them. And Lord, that your word changes them. Lord, thank you for these people. I ask for your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.